Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh, and I want to just thank you for joining me today. I am so glad to share this time with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. And I just want to encourage you to subscribe so that you can always get the next podcast. Let's turn our attention to this week's message. Let's hold on a second here. I just, I don't, we don't normally do this, but I just take a moment. Um, We've got a number of people in our church that listen to the podcast from home. I just want to take a moment and uh, recognize two of them that are on my mind right now. First is Aletha. Aletha, I just want to thank you for listening and for being a part of our church, even if it's through the podcast. You are always such an encouragement to me and to so many in our church. And then to Dawn, Dawn White, I just uh, really treasured getting to catch up with you a little bit this week and just want to say thank you. And I want to encourage you to keep listening. And, you know, if this podcast helps you, this is for anyone listening, I am so thankful to that if it helps you. And I would encourage you to share it with others others so that they could get a chance to listen as well. Well, let's turn our attention now this time to this week's message. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and a great many wonderful books on Christianity, he, throughout his writing career, made several attempts to describe heaven. And as you might imagine, no matter how powerful his efforts were, how well he wrote about heaven, he always came up short. And that would be true of anybody who tried to write about heaven. One book that he wrote about heaven and hell was called The Great Divorce. And in that book, he is describing heaven and he's describing hell. And it's a stunning book. It's one of my favorite books to read. I pull it out every two or three years and read through it again. Uh, Such a powerful book. Now, in that book, he has a description of hell. And I don't want to talk about that too much, but I find it to be very profound. He describes um, hell as though it's... um, People being handed completely over to themselves and their selfishness. As though to say the people who are in hell exist in an ever-increasing loneliness. And that loneliness drives them to misery. And yet their hunger for selfishness only ever grows and pushes them into a more lonely existence. It's a cycle that perpetuates solitude and loneliness and pride and ultimately smallness. It's very profound. Because I think it can be very true um, of our existence here on this earth. When we feed selfishness, when we feed that, it can become very lonely. So I think that's something worth digging into. But then Lewis's description of heaven is something a little different. That it is, he describes heaven as realer than any reality that we can comprehend. And when the narrator of the story first steps into heaven, he's overwhelmed by the whole thing. And and I was struck when I read this book, first time I read it, I was really struck how the narrator, when he steps into heaven, he's overwhelmed by grass. You know, that simple stuff in the yard that none of us really ever think about, except for when we don't want to mow it and take care of it. 
When he steps onto the grass of heaven, he finds he cannot stand on it because it's realer and stronger than anything he's experienced, and it's, it's too much for him to be able to handle. That is one uh, picture that I think is actually really important for us, that he's trying to describe heaven as realer than the reality that we know now, more wonderful than the reality we know now, stronger than the reality that we know now, and because of that, beyond our comprehension. Now, C.S. Lewis, again, attempts to describe heaven in his final book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle. And at the end of the book, the main characters of the story are, they have to step through the doorway of a stable that will take them to Aslan's country. Aslan is the, the lion that's the creator, the ruler of Narnia, and he represents Jesus. He is the God character of the story. So they're stepping through this stable doorway that takes them to Aslan's country. And at first, the main characters are astounded that such a small door and a stable would lead to such a big and wonderful country, Aslan's country. And Lewis makes it very clear that he's conveying that Jesus, born in a manger, in a stable, in a very small place, he's a doorway to heaven, the great and wonderful reality of eternity. And then Lewis, as he's writing the rest of the uh, last battle, he sets a pace describing heaven that is set by two phrases, that it's always faster and faster they're supposed to travel and further up and further in. And he keeps using those words until Lewis's writing abilities can no longer take the reader any further up and further into heaven because it's too hard to describe. Joseph Pierce, in an article to talking about this, writes uh, a wonderful uh, unfolding of Lewis's description of heaven. He writes, uh, in his own words, are actually woven into Lewis's description in The Last Battle of Heaven. And here's a little quote I want to share with you. It's part Joseph Pierce's writing and part C.S. Lewis's writing. And it says this, And there's always more of all that's good limitless goodness seen with endless wonder. The further up and the further in we go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. It's a world within a world, says Lucy, Narnia within Narnia. I love that phrase, that picture of heaven. There's always more of all that's good, limitless goodness seen with endless wonder. The further we go, the bigger everything gets. That's a beautiful picture of what heaven could look like. We need pictures of heaven. We need visions of victory and glory and a world that is far greater than the one we currently reside in. And the prophet Isaiah, he's a man of God, he's a prophet, who was given a mission to preach to Judah. And throughout the book of Isaiah, there are descriptions of heaven. And today I want to share with you one of those descriptions. And I want you to hear this. God is inviting you to join in his kingdom. He wants you to join in and receive the promise of that glorious future. And he wants, with you grabbing onto the future of heaven, to be filled with kingdom life right now. Is the promise of heaven. Wonderful thing about the promise of heaven. It is for the future, but it's a future that trickles back into the present moment. When you truly let Jesus be Lord of your life, the promise of the future then begins to bring healing and restoration into the moment and you begin to experience 
eternity unfolding and now heaven here on earth now. You and I are invited to join God's kingdom, a place beyond comprehension, but not a place that's beyond reach. So I'm going to read the text from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, and I want you to hear, listen for the description of heaven, of what the future holds. We're going to read some other passages as well that describe the future that God has planned for you and for me, for anyone who would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Listen for those descriptions. Listen for the promises of God. And so here, let's begin in Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought to be a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat like will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountains, says the Lord. <clears throat> Describing heaven is a nearly impossible task. I say it's nearly impossible because God can tell us what heaven, heaven is like. He can do it. I say nearly impossible because it is beyond my mortal comprehension and your mortal comprehension to be able to really see that picture of heaven truly. I am convinced that the best efforts that we can find, even what is written in God's word, will pale in comparison to the reality of heaven when you stand in it as one born again, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and now entered into eternity. Now, God has given his word to us. He has chosen to give his word to us in the restraints of human language. And I am certain that we do not possess the vocabulary, the words, to really, truly describe the reality of heaven. We even face the simple challenge of trying to describe something that no one has seen or experienced in complete fullness. I know there are those who they have a experience, a near-death experience, or they get to go to heaven, but they don't stay. And so I don't think they're able to truly describe what they experience. They can't fully describe heaven because they don't stay there. It's like trying to describe the beauty of a sunset to a person who has always been blind. They might comprehend the change from night to morning. You know, the waking of the world, the the warmth of the sun, the change of nighttime sounds to daytime noises. 
But how do you describe the glow, the rays of light peeking over the horizon, and how that sight stirs the human heart? How do you describe that to someone who's never seen? Our best efforts in that instance will always come up short. And our best efforts to describe heaven, well, they're always going to be short. So Isaiah, he gives us much to celebrate, but he's not able to capture everything about heaven. And I think it's helpful for us to keep two ideas in mind as we read his description. His description is not, his description is primarily about the things that are not in heaven. And his description is for people who are in despair. I think those two ideas help us to be able to look at those words from Isaiah and kind of start to sift through and see, well, what is heaven like? Now, over the course of the book of Isaiah, a lot of things happen in history. Because Isaiah is a prophet who confronts the nation of Judah, who confronts Jerusalem. He's a prophet that writes to uh, Judah and, and the people of God after they are conquered by the Babylonians and are in exile. He has words that are for them for when they come back from that conquest and return to Jerusalem to try to figure out how to rebuild. And so, the history that the book of Isaiah covers is quite long. The circumstances are different from beginning to end. And through that, you have to keep in mind that they're going to be, Israel's going to be reading these words at different times in their history, and these words are going to take on a little different meaning, but all of those different points, whether it's before they're conquered by the Babylonians, when they're in the middle of exile, or when they are returning from that to restore their, put life back together, each of those steps is difficult, and each of those steps is, it's written for people in despair. Isaiah chapter 65 specifically is meant to encourage a nation trying to put the pieces of life back together. Jerusalem is trying to find its identity again with residents who have been abandoned, who are left behind, and they had to just eke out an existence in, in the ruins of, of Jerusalem. And then it's also now a city that's being filled with people who have returned from life in Babylon. And those two different groups that have now a a bit of a different heritage, they don't always see eye to eye on how the city should be rebuilt and how the nation should work now. But God gives them a vision of the future to carry them through this tenuous present relationship hardship that they face. So Isaiah describes a vision of heaven. And it's not easy. And if you would give me a little license, I, I kind of feel like it might sound a little like this. Isaiah's going, let me tell you about heaven. Let me describe what's in heaven. Oh, man. Well, I'm not sure how to use the right words to tell you what's in heaven. Um, let me tell you what's not in heaven. Because as you look at Isaiah and his description, <clears throat> excuse me, in Isaiah 65, it's full of what will be missing from heaven. And that's important for us to see. It's for people in despair so that they can get through current hardship, but it's also kind of telling you what's not going to be in heaven. And I'm glad it tells us these things are not in heaven. We need to know that these things are not in heaven because it's good that these will be removed. Because right now, these are things you face right 
in, in the present time. And so there's all kinds of things that Isaiah tells us will not be in heaven. Did you catch it? If you go through the description he wrote, he said there'll be no memory of former things. And let me tell you, this is good news if you have been walking through a dark tunnel of suffering and heartbreak. It's good news to know someday you're going to get through this and you're not going to have to worry about remembering and living in this tunnel of grief and sorrow and hardship. You're not going to be burdened by the painful memories that you have and all that's gone wrong. Now, it's not to say that God takes away good memories, but he says there'll be no memory of former things. And the implication is it's the hard stuff. Second thing he says is there'll be no more crying and weeping. That's not going to be in heaven. And I've yet to meet anyone who reads that text, no more crying and weeping, that thinks that what's being described are tears of joy. It's, it's the negative crying, the negative weeping, the sorrow. It's not going to be present in heaven. There'll be no more mortality. There are several verses in our passage today that speak of infants living a long, full life. No, no be no more infants who live, live just a few days. Uh, and it speaks of those who live to be 100 will be considered young. Death has no place in heaven. Death is something we all face so very much. Israel knew it in their despair and the circumstances being conquered by Babylon. They knew death. They knew death that shouldn't have had to be. Something we wrestle with and face every day. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly, fly away. That's a description. That's reality we live in. And Isaiah is saying there's a future. There's a future. If you are destined for heaven, if you are with God, and we know as Christians, if we, we are with Christ... There's no more mortality to worry about. Heaven is a place of eternity, of everlasting. Another thing that Isaiah says is not in heaven. Because what did I say? He said, there's no more memory of former things of the suffering, right? There's no more crying and weeping. There's no more mortality. And the fourth thing is, there's no more vain work or meaningless work. Let me say it that way. It is miserable to do work that is meaningless. If you're working for pay that doesn't cover the bills, if you're working for a boss who's never pleased, you're working at a job that never ends, oh man, that sort of work is numbing to the soul. Sometimes you just have to to do a job that's you do it and you don't feel like you accomplished anything. Last weekend, I, uh, Betsy and I attacked the leaves in our yard. We knew it was time to get them dealt with. Last Saturday was like the windiest day of the whole fall. The wind just blew like crazy, and it just was so futile to try to rake those leaves up and just watch them blow away as fast as we're raking them. We're trying to bag them, and we finished getting the yard all raked up, and we looked out at the front yard after we finished the backyard, and the front yard had a whole new layer of leaves on it. And we're going, really? That's miserable. we got to do this again. We don't even get to look at a nice cleaned-up yard. It was a, that's, that's such a small thing, but there's so many things in life, so many things we work at, and it just doesn't feel like it, it makes a difference. It doesn't feel like it, it's moving the ball forward. It doesn't feel like it's making the ends meet. It's just numbing when you have to do work that is meaningless. And God tells us that he is breaking this cycle. 
He says that houses, in the text, Isaiah says, houses will be built and you get to live in them, crops you're going to plant, you're going to enjoy them. It sounds like there's going to be work in heaven to do, but it's meaningful and it's worthwhile and it's enjoyable. Work in heaven is no longer cursed. That's the thing. We live in a world now where work is cursed all the time. Even the best work we do is still tough, hard, and has bad days. Work is not cursed in heaven. It's good. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, that's another description of the future that God intends of heaven. I encourage you to read it. We're not going to get the whole thing today, but it has in it a description of the fruit of labor uh, that's getting enjoyed and it's described again. So it's Micah 4 verse 4 says this, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Meaning people are going to get to own their stuff. They're going to be able to enjoy it. It's it's not something that's going to be a constant worry of will this be lost? Will this be taken? Will this... Will I'm going to do all this just so that someone else benefits. There's plenty in heaven. There will be room for all. Another thing that Isaiah writes and says will no longer be in heaven. It says there will be no more silence from God. That's maybe a one I find to be a little awkward to write, but I think we all know that even the best of us, even those of us who followed God our whole lives, who are Christians, who are committed to Christ. We have moments where we pray and we go, God, did you listen? Did you hear? There's just a silence there. We, we know he has listened. But it's sometimes hard here on this earth. Isaiah writes and says, there will be no more silence from God. It says he will hear. He will answer. The distance between us and him is gone. So there'll be no more distance between us and God. And then he also, at the end of that, probably the passage, part of the the description of heaven that most people remember um, about the wolf and the lamb coexisting without fear, um, is that there'll be no more natural hostility. The old order will pass away. This is something new. Everything's in harmony. There's peace. There's a whole description here of things that aren't in heaven. Because Isaiah is trying to describe heaven to people who've never seen it. And he's going, I don't have the words. Heaven is wonderful. You need to know what's not there. And he's listing all this stuff that we struggle with. And he says, it's not there. It's not there. Each of these descriptions is about something that has malfunctioned in our world today. And that malfunction has no place in heaven. Israel needed to hear this because their memory was full of being a conquered people by the Babylonians. They had lived with God's hand of judgment on them because they weren't faithful to him and now they face judgment. They've known death that war brings and they are people who have had their land and the fruit of their laborers taken away from them. They needed to hear these things aren't in the future that God has for you. You have something wonderful in store. In the end, we've got to wrestle with what this description of heaven is asking of us. It's good to read this. It should be encouraging to us, but it's also asking something us. It's telling us a bit of who God is, and it's also telling us that you and I, when we hear this description of heaven, we are invited to participate in God's kingdom. 
as I've read Isaiah's description of the future kingdom, I keep thinking of the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer that Jesus teaches the disciples, there's this line, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is a call in the Gospels by Jesus in prayer to expect heaven, but to also have heaven break into our time right here on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God invites each of us to join in that work. It starts with seeing the world the way God sees it. That's hard to do. Right now, when you look out, you might see things that frustrate you, things that disappoint you, things you're angry about. And that's, it's okay to be angry with injustice. But then we start getting angry at people and saying, they're the problem. Every person on this earth, God sees and says, I sent my son to die for that person. Yeah. Every person is precious to God, worth redeeming. Justice is godly, but godly justice also comes with forgiveness. And our world has a serious lack of forgiveness. Every single hot-button issue in our our society right now, if you think about it, it's loaded with people who want to prove how wrong and how bad the opponents are, the other side is. What if there is a hot-button issue you could think of where you became obsessed with forgiving the people who were on the other side of the argument from you. Instead of saying, I just want to show how wrong they are. I want to, I want to you know, stomp on them. I want, to, I want to pass legislation that will get them in trouble so this doesn't happen anymore. And we want things to be just. But God's justice comes with forgiveness and restoration. Hmm. God invites us into this picture of heaven, and he says, you're invited to bring it to earth as well. There's a limit to what we can bring to earth. But Jesus told us to pray, thy will be done, or thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we get a description of heaven like this, we need to say, okay, Lord, how do I help bring some of this How do I let the Holy Spirit work in my life so that some of this starts showing up on earth now? Another thing we need to remember is that God's plan is far better than we can possibly know or imagine. This text is telling us all kinds of things about God. It tells us that he's in control, that he is the creator, and that that as the creator, his desire is to make all things new and to restore that which is broken in our world. I, I already mentioned that this description of heaven is mostly about what's not in heaven. But in that alone, we learn that God will replace that which is a burden right now with blessing later. Memory, grief, mortality, meaningless work, aloneness. The question is whether or not we'll release our grief to him, to God, because God doesn't force our hand. We got to say, all right, Lord, I'm going to believe that your plan is better than my design right now, because we all have things we're wrestling with right now, don't we? We've got burdens we're carrying right now. God's future goes far beyond going back to the golden memories of the past. God doesn't just want to restore the best of what was. He wants to make it better. 
So often we desire good old days. If I could just go back. Um, you remember the time when things were so much better? I've heard people say that so many times in the last few years. While God wants to bring goodness into your life, He desires to bring something even better than just the good old days or what you think might be good. The question is, is will you let Him? Will you surrender and say, Lord, I don't fully understand the future you have planned, but I will trust that what you have planned is better, and I will let you do that work in me. I'll stop trying to fight. I'll stop even just trying to go back to the good old days that I know. I'll aim for your future that's better. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, the disciples, they're marveling at the beauty of the temple. Jerusalem's been rebuilt. It's been rebuilt for a long time. The temple is now a wonder of the ancient world. It has been restored much to like what it was before it fell and the Babylonians conquered it. This may not be exactly the same, but God's vision of the future wasn't just to bring back the days of old and restore the temple. It was to do something better. So there's that passage here in John and Luke 21, where the disciples are marveling at the temple. Then we get another passage in Luke 2, where Jesus clears the money changers from the temple courts, and he wants to restore it as a house of prayer. And then he says something that no one expects. It's there in John chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it in three days. All the people could see was the physical temple. said, this is what God's plan is. And Jesus is saying, you know, God's plan is even better. It's not just these stones and this place where people go to worship. Jesus is saying he was the temple. He's going to die and he's going to raise in three days. And he's got a better plan and a better future through that. If you're just wanting to have life around you go back to normal, you need to have a bigger prayer than that. Your prayer should be to allow God to bring his intended plan for your future into your life. Give him permission. Last thing I want to mention here um, is that heaven is God's promise to you for the future. And so I want to come back to that question. What's being asked of you when you read such a description of heaven? How are you to respond to it? You can respond to these descriptions of, with doubt. You can go, ah, I think that sounds really good, God, but I, I just don't see how it can happen. You could say, you know, that's nice for later, but it's not helping me right now. God is asking you to replace your view of the present with this picture of heaven. And here's what I mean, and this might be a strange example, but I think it's important for us. Over the last year, our family's been reading The Lord of the Rings. We, we take time and we read a little bit of it out loud. Seth has been enjoying it. Um, we, we did stall out in reading because it's, it's a lot to read. And eventually we just said, hey, let's watch some movies because that sounds like a fun thing. So we watched the movies. We got to get back to reading the book because the book is so much better than the movies. And I was struck... Uh, when we watch the films, there's a line by one of the characters. He's King Theoden. And um, he speaks to the despair that we can feel in the darkness of life. So in the film version of The Two Towers, Theoden's line is, is a lot shorter. 
Uh, he's facing certain defeat at the hands of his enemies. It's a brutish, inhuman army bent on destroying his people. And in his despair, he says, What can men do in the face of such reckless hate? Those are words of defeat. All he can see is the present moment of darkness all around him. Now, in the book, his line is a little bit longer, and it reads like this. Now my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such number and such reckless hate? Had I known the strength of Isengard, his enemy, had I known it was grown so great, maybe I should have not so rashly ridden forth to meet it. So this fictional character, King Theoden, he's burdened by the darkness of the current moment. He cannot see the possibility of victory. He's on the verge of giving up. He holds in his mind and in his heart the wrong picture of the future because his picture of the future is actually just the present moment. Now, fortunately, he's got friends around him who see another picture of victory, and so they urge him to continue, and he does have victory. And there's much in this that I think we can learn from because you and I can, there's a lot we can't know about the future. I can't tell you what next week or next year will bring. I can't tell you if it'll be full of good or full of hardship. It'll probably be full of both. But Isaiah gives us a glimpse, a glimpse into the future of God's victory. And that's what we need to keep ever in our sight. When your hope is built on the power of God, you will find strength to endure whatever is put before you right now. So I urge you today, whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're walking through right now, whether you feel like it's good and okay or whether it is the hardest thing you've ever done, resolve today to keep God's plan for the future in, the, in your heart and in your mind. You're going to need this because when everything falls apart, when everything right now comes off the rails, you're going to need to have a stronger picture of the future than just what you feel in this moment. And God has given it to you in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Micah, all through the Bible, there are snapshots of heaven that we need to grab onto. Will you grab on to that picture of heaven and submit to it, that this is God's plan for you and his leading, what he wants for you? So I want to close. I want to read Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 again. And as you hear these words, will you trust in God that he has promised this future? Will you trust that if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that this is for you? Will you answer his call and joining to bring about a bit of this kingdom of heaven here on earth? There's a limit to how much we can bring, but he's invited us to bring some of it now. Will you hear this picture and fix it in your heart and your mind, whatever you're experiencing right now, and remember this is the reality God has planned for you, not whatever hardship you face. So here again, the words from Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth, 
The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere child, and the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses that others li- and others live in them, or plant and others eat." For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will, their ch- nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now I want to continue and read a little more. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Revelation. Now you can read Revelation 21 and 22. That's a great picture of heaven. But I want to read Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 through 17, because this is the future promise for God's people, for those who follow Jesus, the Lamb of God. And it reads like this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? And where? Do, uh, and then one of the elders asked me, These in the white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? And I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." You are invited to join this kingdom through the salvation of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that each person person listening, that in them you will fill them anew with your promise of the future. Lord, it is so easy to make right now, the moment we're in right now, everything. Lord, I pray for the person right now who is struggling, who's hurting, who is just trapped, whether it's in their health or in depression 
or anxiety or whatever the situation. I pray for that person because this moment feels like everything, but you've got a bigger promise for them. Help us not to get stuck in the present, whether it's good times or struggle. Lord, give each of us an ever-growing picture of heaven, more real, more joyful, with more glory than we can imagine. And help each of us to bring a bit of your kingdom right here, right now, onto this earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.